because um, I knew that stories grabbed people. I knew individual personalities were the thing. You know, my, my career as a journalist has really shown me that's when people got interested. That's when I got the letters. Not when I had something important to say, or I felt I did, but when I shared someone's authentic, genuine, heartfelt narrative. That's when people said, I understand it, I get it, you've helped me. Welcome to Confessions. It's a delight today to be joined by Marina Cantacuzino, um, one of my heroes, I, I, wow. <laughs> I have to say. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I think perhaps we ought to, to um, start by saying a little bit about what it is that you've become known for, which is yeah. the Forgiveness Project. Yeah, that's right. Well, I was a freelance journalist for many years, main breadwinner, working um, for all sorts of publications. And my husband was a house husband. I had three children. Um, and it was the Iraq War. Actually, it was the Iraq War which kind of politicised me. I've always been on marches, but I went on that march in Hyde Park. And I don't know, it was, I just felt so strongly that the harder you come down on people, the more they regroup and come back in a more resistant and angry way. And and as a journalist, so after that, I just felt, what can I do? You know, I felt disempowered, disenfranchised, angry. So the Forgiveness Project grew out of anger, and it was about collecting which I think at the time were very countercultural. They were about compassion, empathy, forgiveness, reconciliation, restorative justice. And I had no idea. I was doing a lot of travelling at the time, as a freelance journalist, I was working for Oxfam, Red Cross, with a photographer, and I said to him, we'd done a lot of projects together, and we'd done something about mental health about two years ago. So about, you know, two years previously. And they were just stories, very journalistic. It became an exhibition called One in Four, and it was just strong portraits and first-person narratives, first-person testimonies. And I said to him, why don't we try and do the same about forgiveness? because I was kind of fascinated in the subject. So over a year, this was like 2003, we just collected stories from all around the world, South Africa, Northern Ireland, UK, America, from basically victims and former perpetrators um, that focused on forgiveness, empathy and compassion in order to sort of showcase processes um, that, of, of people who had found peaceful solutions to conflict and that could somehow you know, show that there was a way to create a less divided society. And, I, you know, I had no idea what I'd do with these stories. And they were, they were, they were this, this was individual forgiveness? This was, yeah, this uh, was individual forgiveness, but sometimes from big conflicts like apartheid South Africa, Northern Ireland. It was looking at how people repaired and recovered. Um, and all, during that time, I know, you know, it was just another little project that I thought might, at the very best, become an exhibition, um, at the worst, a one-off article in a supplement. Because um, I knew that stories grabbed people. I knew individual personal narratives were the thing. You know, my, my career as a journalist has really shown me that's when people got interested. That's when I got the letters. Not when I had something important to say, or I felt I did. But when I shared someone's authentic, genuine, heartfelt narrative, that's when people said, I understand it, I get it, you've helped me. So... What basically happened was I met Anita Roddick, fantastic woman who body sadly shop. since died, body yeah. shop founder, social activist. She saw the raw material and she said, this is amazing. You need to do something more than this. And she gave us, me and the photographer, who was called Brian Moody, funding to put it on as an exhibition, which we did in 2004, January, um, at the Oxo Gallery. We called it the F word because by then I knew what a contentious, highly difficult subject it was. And that's when, you know, three months later, I created the Forgiveness Project because I was just overwhelmed by the interest. I'd written about all sorts of things. And, you know, the mental health exhibition got a lot of interest. But always my life went back to journalism. But this, actually, this subject would not let me alone. So I never planned to do it. It literally took me with it. Um, and I think at that time, these were narratives of hate of hope, sorry, <laughs> in a very difficult, bleak time. And and people really, uh, it, they sort of tapped into a deep need that people had for sort of humanising rather than brutalising stories. And it, as I say, the subject would not let me alone. And 15 years later, I'm still working with it. 
and have started an organisation which is small, but has a very far reach. And the the whole point about narrative, which is, mm. you know, one of the... It's, it's, it's not so much a sort of philosophical or a theological, or, but narrative is one of the sort of key ways in which... I'm, this is a question, but I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, you, that you sort of open up other people for empathy and yeah. for understanding and for yeah. forgiveness. Yeah, I think it's the way that you walk in someone else's shoes. And I think there's been research that shows that stories have a tremendous power in shifting people's thinking and behavior. But it's also very important to remember that n stories and narrative can fan the flames of prejudice and normalize hate. They're not good per se. So I choose to use the term restorative narrative. Yeah. All the stories we work with are restorative in some way. And I think it's also important to say in that year, I started out with a sort of very simplistic view of what forgiveness was. I'd never heard of the term restorative justice then either, but I found some stories to do the restorative, restorative justice during that time where the victim has met the offender and somehow restored some humanity in both of them from doing that. Um, but I, I started out just sort of thinking forgiveness was this sort of place you arrived at where everything was kind of fixed and okay, and how could these amazing people do it? And I just, my perception changed a lot during that time. First of all, I realised it wasn't. It was really like, it wasn't something you could tick off. It was much more a verb than a noun, therefore, that it changed. Oh, that's from, brilliant. Yes. Yeah, changed from one day to the next, something <coughs> that trigger you. You don't, some, some people do, but the vast majority might hate you know but it's a sort of intention very often it's attention it's something you line you up you line yourself up for um i also thought I, I went to northern ireland and met a former uvf paramilitary called um alistair little and he was quite influential with me, for me at that time helped me sort of formulate my ideas he said i don't want to whatever you're doing he says i don't want to be part of this project if you're telling people they should forgive and you know it was quite a moment i thought ah, no i don't want to be part of anything that tells anyone they should do anything and it was at that point i thought i really need to create something that is exploratory and examines and creates a place of inquiry so we have for instance just one of many you know the story of rami elahan whose daughter was killed in a suicide bomber by a suicide bomber in tel aviv as a teenager and he says i do not forgive and i do not forget but the suicide bomber was a victim like my daughter, grown bitter from poverty and shame. And he works with Palestinians who are also bereaved. Um, so those are the kind of stories. I think the key thing to all the stories is that they draw a line under the dogma of vengeance. But not everyone has embraced forgiveness because people find it such a tricky concept. Forgiveness comes in very very many different forms. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Very many forms. I found out that... Um, you know, through the F word exhibition and all the stories that you know, everyone has a different definition, everyone has different limits. There are people who think it's a contractual relationship between yourself and the person who's harmed you and, and needs an apology and needs remorse. And there are others who say if you wait for apology and remorse, you, you may never get it. The person may be dead or incapable and, and they're still in their hands. Sometimes and in their forgiveness power. leads to remorse rather than record then forgiveness yeah, requires remorse. Exactly. Yeah. It can it can exactly do that and we have stories like that. Um so I think while I would say the forgiveness project now we've collected multiple stories from all around the world and we use them in our prison program, in our schools resource, in exhibitions all around the world and in events and in writings that we do. Um they definitely show that forgiveness is multifaceted. They're not, it's not scientific in the extent that, you know, there are countries that we haven't been to where we should be to, been to, do you know what I mean? But even so, I think it's a huge body of evidence. So the Forgiveness Project is a sort of, is an exercise in compilation, is it? it, it um, a, a compilation of stories. Yes. And then you hold them in some particular form, in, in written form or in, in interviews and so forth, and you make them available to other people? That's right. We have a website, theforgivenessproject.com. And so all the stories we collect are on the website. Some of them we've filmed and we put into a resource for teachers, which is downloadable, because we were finding teachers were saying, this is an amazing website. This really helps us. What more do you have? It took us some years, but last year we launched Schools Education Resource. Um, and then from the website, people can hire the exhibition, which is a, 
you know, it's something that you have to put up in a space. But it's a great way to start conversation. And these are images of the people, people who've been both both uh, victims and, and the, those who were perpetrators. Yes, that's right. And the perpetrators, in a way, they're there because they show how you can use aggre transform aggression into a force for peace. And I've always felt that it's really important to hear those voices because how else do we understand why people harm each other so they go and some of the speakers some of our storytellers speak at our events are going to prisons with us to share their story we have a, we have a prison program called restore that has grown out of this that is restorative justice in a sense in that it's facilitated by both a victim of crime and an ex-offender not the same crime if you see what i mean nevertheless then working together creates a restorative space and it's all about storytelling. It's getting people to share. I mean, when, you, when you're bringing people together, victims and former perpetrators, I mean, this is a, da it's a dangerous, uh, emotionally sort of, you know, I mean, this is very tense. And it is, but, but remember, I'm sort of reaching people. I can't not tell you how many TV companies have rang me up, us up, over the years to say we want to do a film about you. Nothing has ever come of it because people want it to be happening right there and then. They want the conflict, they want to see it resolved. But actually we're reaching people after the resolution. We're doing it when they've reconciled, when they've gone through the processes of hate and anger and, and deep pain. So they have something, there's something about hope, there's something about reconciling and restoring. And I, what I maybe should have said, when the exhibition was first launched in January 2004, the reason why I thought to form the Forgiveness Project was that uh, with Anita Roddick's funding, we were able to bring 10 of the storytellers, um, one or two from outside the country. And for two days, because the press was overwhelming, the interest in that exhibition was extraordinary. And they did lots of interviews and they spent two whole days together. And all of them said to me, it was such a healing space that they were together. And to be, okay, it wasn't their perpetrators, but to be with someone who had killed and they, you know, maybe their father or their child had been murdered. And everybody seeking the same goal. Um, it was and finding common ground with someone who should have been their enemy. They just they described it as a healing space. And they encouraged me to do something more with it. That the, there's a courage from victims speaking out about it, and there's a courage also yeah. from perpetrators, former perpetrators, yeah. you know, just being filmed or uh, so much yeah. easier to sort of hide away, I oh, guess. Absolutely. I and mean, one of the stories, and you'll probably know it, is Joe Berry and Patrick McGee, and he was the Brighton bomber, and her father was killed in the Brighton bomb. I've heard them speak um, many times, actually, now. And it's a difficult conversation, and he's forever being attacked, because unlike many perpetrators, he actually says, people want a per former perpetrator to say, this is like the interesting thing about... Shamima Begun, just recently. Oh, yeah, come ISIS, on to that. I want to come yeah, on to that. But she didn't say adequate remorse. But also many people think Patrick McGee doesn't show adequate remorse because what he basically says was, at that time, I had no choice. I was at war. I was defending my people. People wanted to say, it was wrong. I should never have done it. I'm apologetic, hugely remorseful for all the harm I caused. So Joe Berry has manoeuvred this very difficult dialogue. It makes it very real. Um, many people actually have great um, admiration for for Patrick McGee for doing exactly what you say, putting his head way above the parapet and speaking out. Um, but I also think, I mean, uh, an interview I've just done recently is with Ivan Humble. It's about to come out on our website. He's a former member of the EDL, um, a racist. He said to me, you know, I went from being the hater to being the hated because now he's sort of, in the eyes of the EDL and others, betrayed his group. And it's an isolating place, but then so is forgiving. Forgiving is yes. seen as an act of betrayal very often yes. by your family and friends. So both of them find themselves in the place and of isolation. And a betrayal against justice sometimes, you know, some, some, yep. somehow that it's just like that somehow justice hasn't been served if you forgive, yes. that the person hasn't been yes. punished or that's, you know... Yeah. Yeah, and of course it hasn't actually just has very little to do with justice. I, I discovered a group in America that were actually for the death penalty, but also forgave. 
So I found myself finding it a little bit hard to get my head around that, but I had to accept that that was a genuine emotion that they felt because some people feel that the law of the land should take its course, but in their heart, they feel no hatred anymore. I think where forgiveness can become very useful is where actually justice is no longer possible, where it's like an ancient um, conflict, perhaps that's been passed off over the generations, passed down the generations, and that where things are really stuck and there is no possibility of perpetrators being taken to court, where it's difficult to see who is the victim and who is the perpetrator. Duncan Morrow, who is an academic who's worked in peace in Northern Ireland for years, talks about the impossible yet essential need for forgiveness in Northern Ireland. And I really love that phrase, the impossible yet essential yes. need for yes, forgiveness. Yes, 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 it yes, sort yes. of sums it up for yeah. me, this huge complex area we're in. So there's so much to talk about here. But what I quite like to do now, we've had a little look at what it is that you do. <laughs> I want to rewind a little yeah. bit and I want to talk about you. Um, so I want to um, perhaps I just ask you to say a little bit about where you come from, about your your own family background, yep. your parents, where you brought up, and oh, some okay. of the values that you got yeah. from that and how they might translate into yes, this. Yes, that's really interesting. I never really asked about that, so <laughs> it's interesting. Thank you for asking. Well, it's kind of interesting for me to think about my roots. Um, I am the sort of third, second child of um, an immigrant from Romania who came when he was 11, just before the Second World War. And what was interesting to me, actually, is I grew up and Romania was so exotic and people were so interested in it. And over the years, it's become, you know, especially recently, something that people kind of, you know, it's a country that many revile, actually. Yes, 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 yes. So that's been an interesting experience. But And my mother was a Catholic from um, from England and she I was brought up a Catholic, uh, but I actually just couldn't believe. Right. So then I became an agnostic. And Where was this? What part of London? Okay, this right. was London. Three children. My brother had um, a disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is inherited, and I, he died at seventeen, along with two of my first cousins. So they were very Catholic. Then there was a priest in the family, and actually that really helped because there was a real sense that, um, you know, life, no matter how short, is of value. And that they were not dead, they had gone elsewhere to better places. So actually that did really help. Um, but I grew up knowing he was going to die. You see, and I think that was very, very painful because I was very close to him till he was about nine. Because it's a very cruel disease. You get weaker and weaker and you end up in a wheelchair and then your heart gives up. So by the time I was a teenager and he was about 10, I found it really difficult. As teenagers do, I just wanted a normal brother. And I kind of protected myself by going, going distancing myself. Um, but I often think that everything I did after that, because actually the very first piece of journalism I wrote was about growing up with a disabled brother, sibling. And it was published in The Guardian. And in those days, pre-email, I just sent it off to The Guardian Women's page and they published it. And it gave me confidence that I could write. And it, and it led to my life in journalism. And also, I think it was because being around pain, I was very comfortable around pain in a weird kind of way. So uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the thing that, that takes, takes yeah. you through into, that's in a way... I think that, so. That's what you've... Yeah, uh, and transformation. in a way that... Yeah, I found it was a gift, and it really... Um, you know, it's a long time ago now, and obviously I don't think about it so much, but it was so important in my... Teenage, teenage years in my 20s it was like it was what formulated everything that I did um, that loss and and I'm sort of very grateful that actually I was able to create meaning you see like going back to forgiveness I realize all the stories I've collected over the many years it's all about meaning making and it's about using the story to help yourself and to help others it's interesting I, I mean I think one of the things about being a priest is that and, and being around quite a lot of suffering is that in the end you don't get freaked by other people's suffering. And that I always yeah. think of as one of the sort of like things that those people who haven't been around a lot of suffering mm. are afraid of it in a way that's mm. sort of, um, I don't know, they're sort of frozen by it in a way. Yeah. But, yeah, but, but, you're, but you're not frozen by no, it, No, and all you? my journalism was about <coughs> health issues and relationship issues. And, you know, I went to Chernobyl and, and looked at that and... So into Africa and a lot of the stories around there 
about poverty. Did you do university and, and, and uh, I did. You know, I went to Cambridge. I went, I went um, when I was twenty-one, actually, as what was called an independent student, and I did a sort of. A, it was one of the only colleges that did an open exam because you know I went. It was diff a bit different, but I went, and that I think I got involved in the student magazine. There. What did you do? English. Right. Yeah, I mean, sort of obvious the whole thing. I worked in telly for a little bit as well as a researcher. But I love writing. I've always loved writing. So that's where the stories grow out of writing. And actually, one thing that the Forgiveness Project is a small organisation with about five staff. And one of the things we've been trying to do over the last few years is to actually bring it away from the printed word. Because the exhibition is very text-heavy. So we relaunched the exhibition two years ago, and it's got film and it's got activities, and it's got a sort of guided journey through asking questions about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. You see, I think the thing about forgiveness, I've, I think the thing about forgiveness is, is so, it's not just morally complicated, of course, it's emotionally, it's, it's vastly emotionally complicated. One of the things that's always struck me, I mean, this does sound a bit academic and so forth, but Nietzsche has this um, uh, sort of, I, I think, fascinating line about one of the problems with Christianity and Christians who forgive is you forgive someone. You, you, nonetheless, there's a sort of burning sense that uh, anger, which has not been resolved through forgiveness, you know, that you're that there is something um, that there's something about punching someone back mm. or getting your own mm. back, which creates a sort of emotional or you know you feel will create a sort of emotional balance and so forth. And to forgive feels emotionally like it's living without that balance. Now, yeah. the balance is probably a fantasy, but nonetheless, to, to forgive itself can make the person who forgives angry. And, you know, it's not a sort of calm, nicey-nicey no, no, no. thing at all. You really get at that, which is yeah. what I love yeah. about your... Yeah, it's difficult. It's complex. It's, it's gritty and painful. But, uh, you know, the reason why we talk about it, it is can sort of transform. It can mend broken hearts and restore broken communities. And it's kind of fascinating for me, the power that it has for those that are able or willing to go down there. Um, and I think there's so many misconceptions about it as well, aren't there? You know, that it's easy, that it's... I, I mean, one thing we've tried to do, I've, tr I've tried to do, is to not present it as something just for the mentally strong or the morally and spiritually superior. Yes. Um, and I think that's why the Forgiveness Project is alive today, alive and kicking today, is because that exhibition that led to the organisation, people felt they found themselves in those stories, even though they were actually very extreme stories about murder and terrorism and you know awful things. Nevertheless, it was the human journeys and the fact that people were not preaching. I was just so, so clear that I should not tell anybody what to, to do um, and that people had to make their own decisions, you know, because it can become a tyranny. I think figure this can become a tyranny, actually, if you, if you believe that, if you're told that if you can't forgive, you'll be sort of failing or ill or all that. So I'm very, very careful about the discourse around it and even thought at one point, oh, God, the Forgiveness Project is a really hard name because people think we're selling and persuading and we're not. We're this place of discussing. But presumably, I understand your reluctance to do that and I understand mm. that, I sort of understand that tactically. <laughs> I know what you're going to say, uh, but, <laughs> but you but, are. But, well, I mean, presumably you think forgiveness is a good thing. Not, yeah, but not in all cases. Is that right? Yeah, not so you think th think there are some cases where it's just not a it's not it's not a, a good thing. Well, again, it depends what you mean by forgiveness. Okay. But there has been research to say say that um, in in um, domestic violence situations where women forgive, they it, it does mean that the violence continues because for them a, a thought forgiveness is staying and and. Desmond Tutu is wonderful on this. He talks about you can forgive and release a relationship or you can forgive and renew a relationship. And the forgiveness in itself is the same. But, you know, I suppose I would, what I do think... So forgiveness can sometimes be complicit in maintaining yes. unjust structures. And it has been evidenced. You know, I'm not yes. just saying that. Yes, yes, there yes. is research out there to say yes. that. 
Um, and I, I wrote a book with a psychologist recently, um, Dr. Massey Noor from Keele University, and it's actually a graphic book with lots of pictures and very little words. It's incredibly difficult to write, funnily enough. But it's got lots of the research in it, and we use some of that research, and we talk about... Um, we talk about faux forgiveness and pseudo forgiveness, where people um, think they've forgiven, but and talk about forgiveness actually about their behaviour isn't hasn't very changed. It isn't very so. forgiving. It's so much. This is why it's such a difficult concept to work with because it's so individual, and everyone has a different take on it, and everyone has different limits, and everyone has different. Um, Definitions. But presumably, after looking at all these stories and, and people over a great deal of time, you, you will, even though it's, I understand the individual stuff, but there are themes that you will begin to sort of recognise. There are patterns. Oh, there are patterns. And the patterns are, for instance, curiosity. I always think curiosity is the key thing with forgiveness. The first starting point that you have to be interested in other people. And then empathy, um, understanding... Uh, and uh, kind of letting go some sort of release of resentment is is absolutely critical. And it's sometimes that might be giving up expectations of how people should behave or giving up your right to be right. Giving, giving up, up your right to be right. Giving from up the, what's that wonderful What's that wonderful Yehuda Amichai poem? Um, from the place where we are right, flowers do not grow in the spring. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful oh, poem. And it's a bit like Rumi. Out beyond right and wrong, there is a field. I will meet you there, which I love. And, and, that, and, of course, the really interesting thing about that and how forgiveness relates to morality is that forgiveness can be perceived as being, well, amoral, Com, com, you know, yeah. when contrasted with a sort of a strong sense of right and wrong, not to do with, you know, above above the courts is justice with her scales. Yeah. And, you know, if you do something wrong, then you there's a certain degree mm. of, um, you know, compensation that's required in order to balance yes, out the scales. Right. Yeah. And and forgiveness sort of flies in the face yeah. often of those. You know, it, it often isn't balanced, and it can't ever be balanced. Yeah, it can't be balanced. And uh, and it's very useful where, you know, that uh, where people are stuck, basically. It kind of unsticks people. How can you balance out somebody who's who's killed a yeah, child exactly. or something like exactly. that? What would balance that? Yeah. And it's very interesting to me how people come to... It's very rare for people to suddenly... Something bad happens and they're very, very hurt to go immediately to a place of forgiveness, often it takes years and decades. And often they're spent and depleted in so many ways that they just look for another way forward. And many of the stories are like this. Some, some more instantaneous um, or, or, you know, it's very obvious to me why people would choose it. For instance, Wilma Dirksen, her daughter went missing many years ago, age 13, and was found, well, I don't know, some days, week later, murdered. And she describes the day that the daughter was found. That night, a man comes to her daughter she's never met, and he is the father of a murdered child, and he wants to talk to them. And he, put, he sits around their kitchen table, and he tells them everything he's lost, and he lists everything he's lost, his, his job, his equilibrium, his wife, his, his work. And her and her husband go to bed that night, deciding that they've lost enough and they cannot lose everything else, and they have to choose another straight, path. Straight away? Yeah. Well, yeah, within week, two weeks. Wow, that's extraordinary. Um, and yeah, and they decide. But they, it's not like they've done it. It's an intention. It's like we have to find another way, because the way that that father illustrated to them was so painful and yeah. so horrific. So it became an intention. They did, in fact, become known as the forgiving couple. It wasn't... They became actually quite... Um, they were attacked for it as well. You see, so this is going back to it can be an isolating place. We we, we sometimes think of, I mean, in this example, my, my reaction to the example that you've just described, um, and I'm suspicious of my initial reaction. Yeah. My initial reaction is it would take a sort of superhuman type of person to do that. And there's often that sort yeah. of reaction yeah. to forgiveness. There is, and I have it as well. That it takes something superhuman. But I'm also suspicious of, I am. of of that reaction because actually the people who I know who've forgiven, and often I've 
come across them through, you know, your work, that there isn't anything superhuman. It's no. it's very human. Yeah, it's yeah. very... And it's uh, very pragmatic very often. It is a strategy to deal with pain. And people choose it and explore it and, and move towards it. Um, I agree with you. And I felt it with the Amish, Amish. I felt it, I think it was Charleston, where that young white man went into a black church and shot so many people and within days 24 hours even they were taught that you know the parishioners the survivors were talking about forgiveness their faith leads them towards forgiveness you cannot help but wonder is it premature that's what i wonder then i tell myself who am i to judge it's what is helping them at that point whether it's real or not whether it'll come later or not you know it's helping them but but you sometimes, know, but your words go go ahead of, of what your of what your sort of heart, as mm. it were, can, mm. and that's okay. Sometimes that's okay to do that. I mean, I know some people might see that as hypocritical. Mm. I I, mm. I don't have such a problem with hypocrisy. Yeah. But you know that somehow that what you intend, what you want, goes ahead of what you're capable yeah. of doing and leads you there. Yeah. Yes, and I think where the problem may lie. This is a wider kind of discourse, and there was. A lot of debate about it at the time with the Charleston case was does black forgiveness condone white violence? Oh, goodness. How helpful is it? Goodness gracious. You know, me. and, and it, you know, there's no answers really, but because I deal with individuals mainly, even though so often they're part of a bigger group, I respect the individual journey, you know. If it's not harming anyone else, it's helping you. And, of course, one of the things... I mean, you talk about individuals, and and I know that yeah. the Forgiveness Project is all about individuals, but m one of the things that must have been there at the back of your mind uh, as you're setting up the Forgiveness Project is the Truth and Reconciliation mm. yeah. Commission, which is a, a sort of a, a more... It's not a... I mean, it's about individuals and their testimony, but it's also a, a strategy, in a way, for bringing, bringing healing mm. to a, a whole community. Yes. I mean... A, yeah, That's yeah. certainly the way in which, you know, people like Desmond yeah. Tutu would have described it and so forth. But then again, there are also those people who, from a moral perspective, criticise yeah. the truth and reconciliation yeah. perspective. Yeah, amnesty came too soon for some, that it let people off the hook. But I think it's widely been accepted that it probably helped there being further violence. And, it's, it's, and the way I choose to, you know, the Forgiveness Project is able to, to present that story of the truth and reconciliation is, you know, through doing some, a handful of individual stories from that time. So, because again, it's, I think people are more able to understand what happened by hearing the story of one person or, you know, a small group of people rather than being reading a history book or an article um, because you're able to walk in the shoes. Um, even, and you know, this whole thing about empathy is very interesting as well because most of us are empathetic, but we tend to empathise with people like us, people within our own moral circle. Um, so, you know, my my greatest sort of goal in a way is to make make you try and go walk in the shoes of people that you might think you despise. That's really hard. And my my um the 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 the, uh, the other group that I have had a little bit to do with, and I feel. Um, uh, extremely sort of oh it's shaped you know it's shaped me I guess is mm. the parent circle yeah. and uh, the, the the work that they do in Israel Palestine. Well, Rami Elahan, who I mentioned, he's that's exactly the group yeah. that he became a part of, the parent circle. And they're they're um, uh, yeah. they're, they're they're a group from Israel Palestine yeah. who both both groups have lost yeah. children in the uh, actually in the any conflict. loved one it can be is, sibling is that right? or okay. parent yeah. right 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 and I I, I, sh yeah. I, sh I think I saw an exhibition in Tel Aviv and I know that they uh, sort of bravely cross borders that yep. they're not supposed to go to yep. I yep. mean it's extraordinary the bravery yeah. that's and and the and the and the and the hatred that they receive for doing yeah. it this is it I mean uh, another of our storytellers is Jill Hicks who lost both her legs in the London bombs she actually doesn't talk about forgiveness, but she's very clear about not hating um, and about building bridges. But she she would require some kind of dialogue with the person who's harmed her in order to go down forgiveness, and he's dead. So that's not on the cards. But she receives so much hate, so much hate. 
And we hate just, for not hating. Yeah, hate for not hating. And that came as a shock to me. And I've only noticed that in the last five or so years. Um, and, but she's, she is relentless. She's out there on social media taking the abuse. And she has this thing like she sat on a plane, she describes it at great length, with a far right, someone from the far right, you know, just happened to be on the plane. And they had a very meaningful dialogue. And by the end of it, he said to her, well, I think I'm, I'm less far right now. And it was all about respect and listening and having a creative conversation. So she tries to do that wherever she can. But, I, you know, you also get, because she's also in a hell of a lot of pain still, um, and you just feel like, God, how could people be so cruel? Is forgiveness a... I mean, we, we sometimes it's not a terribly helpful word. No, it's not. And I thought changing that you know not pulling off the forgiveness project because it was so unhelpful people assume we're christian for a start and that we're there to prescribe forgiveness um and so we thought about calling it something else but actually the reason we stuck stuck with forgiveness is that it's mm -hmm. always a fantastic debating yeah. people have an opinion yeah. people love to talk about it yes 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 so it starts a conversation since we're all about conversation is the Christian? I mean, because Christianity has a sort of quite a strong association with forgiveness. Yeah. In terms of, uh, um, is that that's unhelpful? Is it? Do you find? Well, I mean, it might be unhelpful in terms of. Sorry, let me just make that question clearer. It could be unhelpful in terms of it makes it seem like a Christian thing yeah. and therefore not for other people. Yeah. Or has Christianity also given to forgiveness something that's unhelpful? A little bit. I think it's a little stuck in the straitjacket of of religion. Uh, and Christianity, but less and less so, because when I first started, there wasn't very much out there about forgiveness, and I think now there's a lot more, and I notice in the press there's quite a lot, and in America there's a lot around self-development and forgiveness, but it can be quite proselytizing, and, it, and sometimes the language just doesn't sit happily or easily with me. But I, you know, I, I think it is sort of, um, sort of barnacled by eons of piety in a way, and one of the things I've tried to do is reframe it. Now I used to say, I used oh, that's to say, a phrase <laughs> what you just said, barnacled by eons of piety. I've just shriveled <laughs> up. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean that's yeah. extraordinary, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I used to say proudly. Convicted. Um, the Forgiveness Project is grittily secular. Until I was taken to task for this by Marion Partington, who's actually in the news a lot this week because her sister was killed by Fred and Roseby West, um, serial killers, and it's some anniversary, so she's, she's done some media, and she's one of our storytellers. And she said, you're wrong. Look at the stories, she says. It's, Forgiveness Project isn't religious, but every story, look at them, has a deeply spiritual element. And I thought, yeah, that's absolutely true. It is absolutely true. I mean, forgiveness and spirituality, however you define spirituality, it's really complex, complicated concept. But I felt that was true. Grisly Secular didn't, wasn't right. And it was also, it's not quite inclusive. No. As inclusive as you, you wanted it to be inclusive. That was exactly. presumably the way in which you, the reason you put it that way. But yeah. actually, it turned out that yeah. isn't quite yeah. as inclusive as yeah. perhaps you intended. Yeah, and we certainly do have stories that come from a Christian perspective, from Jewish perspective, from... Muslim perspective. Shemima Begum. Oh, yes. I mean, this has revealed something about, to me, this has revealed something about us as a, as a yeah. society and the way in which we, that we uh, find forgiveness so difficult to, or we even think that forgiveness is something, yeah. you know, we should be hostile towards, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I, I feel yeah. I want to proselytise for forgiveness. Yes, <laughs> when it, well, when I do yeah. a bit actually. I'm more, I'm more in that. I understand why you, why you don't. I really do, and yeah. I, 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 I do. But I, I feel I do want to proselytise a bit more forgiveness, especially when it's something you know. In this case, that people are so sneery I know, about. I know, I know. Well, I, I, she asked for forgiveness from the UK. She said it in so many words. Um, and I wrote a blog about it, and then the BBC picked up on it, and I did about four interviews about it. So I'm quite careful. I, unlike you, I well, I make an assumption here, but I don't have very much resilience for horrible comments on Twitter and something like that. I think you've got quite thick skin. You can take it. 
and you can give it back and that's fine. But I'm not very good at that. So I'm very careful about what I say and I'm very, very measured and you could argue too much so. But in the blog, I tended to say, you know, as far as I could see, forgiveness was more to come from those who had been directly hurt or from her parents, those that she had, you know, very directly had a relationship with. But for us, it was about compassion. And I therefore, see. we needed to, and that, and that I can, post, I feel more comfortable. I see. Being very proselytizing about compassion. Yes. Because I definitely agreed with everything you said. Or, or I think we're probably completely on the same page with, on this. And, and I found it very sort of upsetting and disturbing the way that people couldn't see that perhaps she was traumatized, that perhaps she was brainwashed, that who else was listening to her when she was in that camp? Who was behind her back or the other side of the room? Well, Anthony Lloyd, who, who did, did that interview, actually said about that camp, that the camp was, a, and this was in his interview in um, GQ, the mm. camp was a mini caliphate. And yeah. so... You know, there there will no, be people not. standing over her shoulder. Yeah, um, people are so black and white. I think they just don't see the the sort of grey. Um, and I was very taken actually once listening to an interview on the BBC with um, Ian Paisley before he died, and he was asked by a BBC journalist, you know, how can you possibly be so chummy with Martin McGuinness, you know, former IRA, um, when you he's shown no remorse. You know, it's very interesting to think about. And he said, remorse should be measured by how you live your life now. And I thought that was a really useful phrase, actually. And I also thought for Shemaina Begun that give her a chance to show remorse. It's a muscle. She needs to have a chance and help to exercise it. Bring her back. This is, for me, absolutely crucial because it, it sort of breaks a, a particular way in which forgiveness is often used. Um, as a sort of, in fact, sometimes used as a stick to, so in order for us to forgive, she must or he must abase themselves, um, mm. you know, uh, do this sort of due penance, especially when it's a sort of a whole society yeah. having a go at a teenage girl. Yeah. You must, you know, be completely sort of destroyed in in before we're prepared to sort of have you back or Shame. accept you or... Yeah. Yeah, and th th actually that's... The, so the language of forgiveness and the whole sort of mechanism of forgiveness actually turns into something persecutory. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's, yeah. that's horrendous. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know if you know Michael Lapsley's story. Do you? Is he... Priest is he, with no hands. Priest, yes, yes, Yeah, yes. they got... He, he was a member of the ANC in South Africa who went to Zimbabwe in exile... Um, the security forces, apartheid government, sent him between a religious magazine a bomb. He opened it. His he said to me up. once, "You know, forgiveness can be an act of aggression." And it, it was quite. He said, "Like if I come up to you, yeah. Giles, and I say, you know, I really forgive you for all that stuff you said about Brexit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, but that's an aggressive. You know, exactly right. It's exactly very right. aggressive. Yes, 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 yes. Exactly right. You know, and that's therefore exactly right. I'm right and you're wrong. That's exactly right. It's not helpful. Yeah, you yeah. Need yeah to find yeah, common ground and yeah, places. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes it's very obvious who the perpetrator is, and they are very remorseful, or, you know, and 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 it can really help the person who's been doing the hurting. I mean, one of our stories is Arno Michaelis, who is a former white supremacist from America and did a lot, a lot of damage to many, many people. Um, his story started to turn around when he went into McDonald's once and he had swastikas on his knuckles, tattooed. And the woman in, who was a black woman behind the counter, looked at them and instead he was sort of pushing his knuckles out to be very aggressive. And she looked at him with compassion and she said, you know, you're worth more. You're more than that. I can see who you are. You're not that. And he fled from that place. And it was the beginning of his journey of change. And he said it was instances like that, um, that people who he once hated, their forgiveness or their that kind of response that allowed him to move from hating to starting an organization called Life After Hate. And now he's he does amazing work. Um, encountering extremism and talking about love, you know. My 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 um, thinking about forgiveness is is shaped by um, the sociologist and I guess theologian uh, Rene Girard and all the stuff about retribution that it's somehow 
that yeah. forgiveness is not a sort of, and not necessarily some sort of something you do inside, but it's a refusal of revenge, I guess. Yeah. That it's a refusal yeah. of revenge. Yeah. So, you know, it's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but you just break that cycle, break tit that for cycle. tat, break, yeah. tit for tat. And what I like about that is it is it doesn't get mired in the I couldn't do that or I, you know I, I I couldn't have that superhuman strength. It's just like I won't respond back in kind. It yeah. becomes something quite Im yeah. empirical, you know. Yeah. And I I've always I've always rather liked that take on things that it takes that it takes forgiveness away from the sort of superhuman yeah. and gives it a all you have to do is just. Well, at least to start with, you just don't yeah. reply in yeah. kind. Yeah. yeah, and that's what Jill Hicks said. That when she was in that, in the tunnel in the dark, and hoping to to live, and everyone around her was dead, she says the hate has to stop with me. That's all she knew. And when she survived, that was her mantra really for living. Um, and and it, it kind of makes sense because there's a lot of research that shows that for having a forgiving attitude actually is good for your mental health, your physical health. It ties in, well, I suppose, with the research on depression and stress and anxiety. But people live longer even. There's some interesting studies done. Um, it makes sense. You're, if you're anxious and angry, you think about, you ruminate, you think, you obsess. You have vengeful fantasies. You talk all the time. You alienate people. You know, even with little things that you know, you and I, I'm sure, have had moments of that when we've been upset by something and angered. It's not doesn't make you feel good. I'm like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're describing my life, but I know. I mean, it's those yeah. mini things, though, as well. Modern life. I yeah. mean, I think I, I actually think modern life, and and I suppose social media is. Social media is something to explore here as yeah. well because social media adds a dimension of reciprocity. I mean, in that Girardian terms about, mm. you know, uh, tit for tat, tit for tat, it encourages yeah. Yeah, that encourages sort of, yeah. uh, that, 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 that encourages reciprocity. It does. Um, yeah. It, and it doesn't encourage. Not dialogue. It doesn't encourage. Or forgiveness. Dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what you think about this. One of my favorite sort of, um, People out there speaking about this stuff is Brenny Brown. Do you know her? No. Oh, she's she's brilliant. She's done a lot about shame and vulnerability. Uh -huh. She's big in America. Okay. And pretty big here. Oh. And she talks about how we need to be really careful with the words that we use. And she really discourages anyone for even sort of calling the police pigs and things like that, or whatever side you're on, right. just not name calling, because right. she says that you know we then will poison the water supply from which we all drink. And contaminate it, and that, so I sort of try and follow that, um, because I think it's really important to have strong views and to get your to speak up for injustice is really important. And there can be those who think that if you believe in forgiveness, everything's okay. You know, keep everything quiet and don't get angry. Soft, so soft, yeah, yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. But the ways is all to do with how we communicate with each other and how we have really. I think was it St. Francis who said, "Seek first to understand before you seek to be understood, you know? I think that's brilliant. I only read that the other day. Yeah. Apparently didn't say it. Really? Yeah. Who said it then? <laughs> well, there's a, Who said there's it? a debate. No, there's a debate whether he said <laughs> it or not. Did someone say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, okay, so it's, a famous, it's a famous attributed yeah, okay, to... Yeah. Uh, that was the quote that Mrs. Thatcher used on the... Uh, on the steps of Downing Street. <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, I think it was when she uh, when she first became prime minister. She she uh, she used that quote. Okay. Just now, I mean, but uh, whether oh, well, it's St. Francis or not, it's a lovely. Then. I mean, I tell you it what, it's, it's still true, doesn't it? Yeah. It's still true. It's painted, sort of, but <laughs> there's a truth to it. Well, yeah. I I sort of um, how, how do we uh, how do we um, find as a society now here where we seem to be more split than. Mm. Uh, we have been for a long time. Brexit, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah, I'm sure I've contributed as much to the sort <laughs> of like heat, not to light. And, you know, yeah. you get angry and about it and things like that. But um, how do we at some point we're going to try and have to heal as a community? And this mm. isn't I know mm. exactly mm. what you're mm. no, about because no, no. it's individual. But mm. how do you heal as a community? Well, you know, the only way I know as, you know, in a way, 
but it's different. You have your ministry. I, I have stories, um, and I believe in the power of stories. The only thing I know is like to be open to other people's stories, people who are different from us. And how do you encourage that? I mean, just by being less certain. You see, I think certainty is in life a terrible thing. I don't know what you think of that. But I think, although Richard Holloway, the great theologian, says, be, be careful not to be too certain about the merits of uncertainty. And I can fall into that. Because I think if you're, I think black and white thinking um, is actually unhelpful to us. That you know, One of my favourite quotes from the Forgiveness Project is by um, a former jihadist. Khaled Alberi, and he said, the most dangerous thing in life is to believe that truth has just one face. He says that because he used to believe that, and it was very dangerous. Yes, I, could, I agree with you completely about yeah. that. But so I, I find I'm it difficult because I'm... So here's... There's something about the nature of modern... Maybe this is about yeah. the nature of modern media. I always say to, to people who meet me, I say, actually... I'm one of those strange people who has more stronger opinions in public than I have in private. <laughs> I'm much more diffident in, you know, I might on the one hand or on the other, or and I'm not sure and so forth. Yeah. You're, not, you're never going to write a column like that because columns don't write yeah. like that. You know, no one wants them. And you're a broadcaster. Uh, and, I mean, you know, more than this, but you are sort of broadcaster. Yes, I guess, yes, in a, mm. in a general sense. And also polemicist, sense. you know, that's the sort polemicist, of... Polemicist, yeah. And all of that sort of stuff. But actually, and, and there, is a, there is a value in in the sort of polemic and so forth but I also it's just that, that there is a there is a sort of mismatch in me between the polemicist and mm. the actually I'm not sure yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm yeah, really not yeah, sure yeah, yeah and that's very human and I think it's very attractive and I think that's what we'll get eventually once this is all through you know it's uh, I don't what do I know but I just know the only way I can really um is to talk to people I don't agree with and actually think about why they think that and ask them. You know, it's just That's sort of what our confessions is all about, actually. <laughs> That's what I've been trying to do That's with good. this confession. Yeah, that's so. really good. Thank you very much. It's oh, a real great, great joy to... and pleasure to talk to you. Lovely talking to you, Giles. <laughs>